it i mean you thought the first part of the book was bad uh, you thought the first part of the book was hard uh, it gets worse as we're going through this book how can it get any worse you can imagine jeremiah asking this question you see jeremiah is in the midst of a city that's going through a drought growing through a famine and surrounded by the babylonian armies uh, he's had to be rejected by his own uh, countrymen uh, where he lived. And now, in the previous chapters that we just read last week, having to be rejected uh, by the king, the queen herself. And now, starting in chapter 16, it says this. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife. Nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and the daughters who are born in this place and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land, they shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine and by corpses shall be the meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. And so, Father, tonight as we approach this subject, it's truly um, heartbreaking, especially being uh, the prophet of God at this time, having to live a life that is um, supposed to be exemplary, and then to have no helpmate to help you. Uh, Lord, I, I thank you so much for these, my friends that are in this room. I, I don't know what situations they may be going through, uh, the, the, maybe the direness of their situation, the, the hardships that they may be going through, Lord, but just like in the time of Jeremiah, we know that you're there, that you have a, a perfect plan for us, that you're there to help us. And so, Lord, as we, we read this book, help us to maybe get a little more perspective on our own lives, our own problems, our own troubles. Uh, seeing the life of a person who has to go through uh, much deeper hardship than probably will ever face. And yet having to trust in you, to rely upon you in the direst of times. And so, Lord, help us to have that perspective tonight. That whatever problems we're going through, they are infinitesimally small compared to your great and amazing grace and mercy. Your, your infinite power of who you are. So, Lord, I thank you for the book of Jeremiah. I ask that you open up our eyes to see it, to understand it, to apply it to our lives uh, in a, maybe a fresh and a new way uh, tonight. Maybe the parts of the Bible we've never even read before. And so, Lord, we lift up to you our, our pastors. We thank you so much for them, the, the hard work that they do for um, Pastor Mike Ostheimer and, and Pastor Mike uh, Cosper and Pastor Mike Butler and Pastor Mike Atkinson. Uh, Pastor Jason, that you would just bless them, refresh them, uh, help them as they, they serve throughout our campus and our community, 
uh, throughout the week to have uh, new strength every day. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would just give true wisdom to our elders, Larry and Ron, that you would just guide them as they guide our church, Lord. And Lord, I thank you so much for these, the congregation, the ones that uh, put in the time that come here on a Wednesday night when they could be doing anything else, um, when they could be um, watching TV or, or sleeping or, or whatever, Lord, I ask you bless them for their time here. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We ask that you would um, just speak to us clearly tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Jeremiah chapter uh, 16. It's one of those sections in the scripture, again, where we're getting a personal look at Jeremiah's life. I, I don't even, I can't even imagine, I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to have um, a, a, you know, a ministry without a helpmate, without someone to come alongside of you in the times when, when you feel like yourself giving up, uh, or when you feel like, you know, it's just hard. Everybody just has complaints all the time. I'm not talking about you guys, okay? Never you guys. Or, or just even having to bear the problems and, and prayer requests and, and, you know, having to sympathize with other people's hurts and pains. Just to have a, a helpmate there to love, be there to encourage you. I can't imagine what it would be like without Emily. To have someone there for me unconditionally. And now Jeremiah having to get this request, not, not just the, you know, the hardships that he's having to go through externally, the loss of his friends, uh, the loss of, you know, his uh, comfortable life that he had previously, all, all the things that he has to give up for the Lord. But now being told by God specifically, you can't have a wife, you can't have kids. And why is this command given right here? Because as we read previously, there's a drought going on and there's a famine going on. And as the explanation that we see at the end of this, everybody's wives and kids are going to die. Not, not just a regular death, but as it says in verse 4, they shall die what? Gruesome deaths. He doesn't want Jeremiah to have to go through that hardship. So he's protecting Jeremiah. He, he's making sure that Jeremiah is focused on uh, the ministry in such a way that if he were to marry and lose his wife, or if he were to have marry and have kids and lose them, what would that do to the ministry? And so Jeremiah, having now to remain uh, single, single-minded, and also single in his ministry, has to rely solely upon God. It's one of those things that you have to weigh as the counting the cost of ministry. You see, for Jeremiah... It wasn't just what everyone else was going through. 
he had to remain holy or righteous. Have to know that everybody else was being judged because of their sin. And he had to be there in the midst of it. Sinless. Being an example. Being someone who had to stand up for the faith in one of the hardest times in all of Israel's uh, history. What, what will happen to these people? And, and it's really succinct how it puts it in verse 4. <clears throat> they shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. When the Babylonians tear down those walls, when, when they overcome the gates, when they, they break through the barriers of the Jerusalem fortress, the Jerusalem walls, what will they do with the people inside? Slaughter them all. None of them will be buried. They'll just be left for the carrion. They'll just be left for, as it says in the rest of these verses, the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. Just laying out there rotting. The people of God. And then to realize that those people that do survive, the, the remnant, as God always promises, will be taken away for 70 years in bondage for Babylon. Verse 5, it continues on. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of the morning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord. Loving kindnesses. And mercies. And again, you remember that Jeremiah is the lamenting prophet. His nickname was the weeping prophet many, many times throughout. In fact, four different times in the previous 15 chapters, we read that he wished he had uh, the uh, infinite tears to be able to cry over and over and over again for the people of uh, Jerusalem. And now God is calling him, I'm going to take away my mercies and my grace for a season of time. Can you imagine that? And we understand what a prophet is. A prophet was someone who communicated with God, the message of God to the people that he ministered to. On, on Monday nights, we've been going through the, the spiritual gifts and last week, uh, we, we learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, the ministry of prophecy. N not just a, a prophet in the Old Testament, but even uh, today where a person who receives a, a message from God, from the scriptures themselves, and speaks it to the people. A, a forthtelling, uh, if you will. You see, Jeremiah isn't predicting the future. So much as he is warning the people. He, he's foretelling what is going to be coming for the people. Foretelling what will be taking place. That these events that are coming are gruesome and horrific. Not just to the common people, as we learn in verse 6. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread and mourning for them to comfort them uh, for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Also, you shall not go into the house of the feasting uh, to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I will cause to cease 
from this place before your eyes and in your days, the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and uh, the voice of the bride. Have you ever thought of what your funeral would look like? Maybe you've even planned your funeral. I don't know. <clears throat> what do you want people to talk about you? Maybe you even live your life in such a way where, where you make sure that people hear stories that you want to have repeated at your funeral. Or, or as this next part here, your wedding. Maybe if the wedding was in the past or maybe you're dreaming about a wedding in the future. I don't know what it is. But, but you planned it. You, you had a, a plan for that day. And now God is saying, there's going to be no more plans anymore. Not, not human plans. No one's going to have a funeral anymore because you're just going to be riding out in the you know, streets. There's going to be no more weddings. It's going to be a horrific time in the nation of Israel. By the way, these are the chosen people of God. Uh, these are the ones that God has put his house in. These are the ones that God has stamped his name on, the Israelites. And what is going to happen to them? They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be killed. Verse 10, and it shall be when you show this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Just probably what we're asking too. Why would this happen to the chosen people of God? Or what is our iniquity or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They have walked after other gods and have served them and worshiped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. You see, just like you may be asking, why is this happening to me? Or why is this happening in my life? You see, for Jeremiah and the people that are there, God is saying it's your father's fault. Your father's abandoned me. Your father's left me. This has been going on for centuries, as we've been learning uh, through the book of Jeremiah. For centuries, the people have turned their back against God. They've been stiff-necked, hard-hearted. This isn't just a one-time occurrence. This is happening generationally. But it gets worse in the next verse. Because why are we being mistreated or, or abandoned for our father's sin and iniquity? Verse 12, it answers that question. <clears throat> You've done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. There's the answer right there. They're not listening to God. Oh, oh, they have the motions, as we learned last week. They, they have the religiosity. They, they have the temple. They go through the motions of service. They have the lip service. But what are their hearts like? Far from God. 
Therefore, I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. You want your gods? You're going to get them. For 70 years, you're going to be in a land with no temple, with no place to worship me. You're going to be in a foreign country with people that do not speak your language. They're going to be telling you what to do. They're going to put you into enslaved labor. You will have no freedom. And you're going to get to serve their gods all you want. You got what you asked for. You perfected your sin. as We learned last week. You can perfect it there. Now, of course, we know what's going to happen. We have that you know, privilege of looking back over the history of the nation of Israel. It's only going to last for 70 years. But the understanding is, as you read the book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra, they're going to come back to the land of broken people. They're going to want to worship God again. They're going to desire it so much. It's going to become ingrained in their lives. But now, unfortunately, they're going to have to live with the consequences of their actions. Verse 14, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into the land which I gave to their fathers. Wow. Even in the most dire of times, what is God going to do? An even greater miracle than bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Wow. How can that be? You see, the Lord is going to show himself strong in the most dire of times. The, the theme of Jeremiah, by the way. To imagine the immensity of our God. And, and we understand, you know, if the, we have problems in our lives. Maybe, maybe it was something small. Uh, maybe when you were younger, it was, it was something that you, you knew that, you know, if you could probably handle it on your own. And so you, you made one of those prayers, you know. And God answered and God came through. And so your faith grew a little bit because you saw God as a little bit bigger than what you saw him previously. You see, the bigger our problems, the bigger our perspective of God. But that's the wrong way of looking at it. You see, God is bigger than every single one of our problems collectively and even of the world totaled all together. When Jesus died on the cross, how many sins did he die for? How many problems did he die for? All of them. Every single one of them. Not just mine, all my sin, but all your sins as well. The immensity of our God. It's just that when our problems get bigger, we see a, a little bit of more of God's power in our lives. But God is infinitely bigger than everything. It's just our perspective begins to change a little bit. We get to see a, a little bit more of who God is in our lives. The power, the working power of our God. <coughs> 
They're no longer going to be the people that were called out of Egypt. They're going to be the people that were called out of Babylon. An even greater miracle that's going to be taking place in 70 years in the future. Verse 16, behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. But before that great miracle can take place, a cleansing needs to take place. Repentance needs to take place. A turning back to the Lord God, who he is. In fact, in verse 19, it says this amazing psalm, and in your Bibles, it probably has a, a different uh, a font or a, a different uh, way of writing, and it's more poetic. This is Jeremiah writing this, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, going all the way back to the Psalms, King David himself. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies. Worthless and unprofitable things will a man make gods for himself, which are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. It will be so amazing that the Gentiles will be floored. The Gentiles will be curious. The Gentiles will want to know. Why is God so gracious to the Jews? Maybe the reason why we came. Those of us that don't even have a drop of Jewish blood in their bodies. Gentiles, right? Anyone that's not a Jew. You see, the privilege that we have knowing that Jesus Christ died for whom? Just the Jews? No. The world, the Bible says. The Gentiles as well. That we have an opportunity to come to God as well. You see, God will bring them back in the most miraculous of ways in order to be a witness to the world. If God can be faithful to the most unfaithful nation on the planet, will he be faithful to us? Yes, he will. He is always faithful. By the way, have you ever thought about why God chose the Jews if they were going to be so horrifically untrustworthy liars, you know, as we, we learned about two weeks ago, you know, those people that were supplanters and, and foot grabbers and deceptive in all their ways. Why would God choose a nation like that? It's always to show himself faithful. Last week I had the privilege of uh, doing a sermon on Peter, first first peter on submission and and it's one of those uh subjects that again peter in the foreknowledge of god using this word foreknowledge only time in the bible 
by Peter that is used in the Bible twice, book of Acts when he speaks to the 3,000, and then also in the book of 1 Peter. The foreknowledge of God, knowing Peter would deny him, choosing him to be an apostle. Can you imagine that? Why would God choose someone like that to be an apostle? And it dumbfounded Peter, by the way. But why would God choose someone like that? Why would God choose someone like me or you? To show himself faithful. To show himself great and mighty in the midst of imperfection, sin, iniquity. As it says in this last phrase of the last verse of chapter 16, and you shall know that my name is Lord. God is faithful no matter what. Wow. And that should just floor us every time. That should just floor us every time. Chapter 17, verse 1, it continues on. The sin of Judah is written with a pin of iron, with the point of a diamond that is engraved on the tablet of their heart, on the horns of their altar of your altars, while their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. Oh, my mountain in the field, I will give us plunder your wealth, all your treasures and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you even yourself shall let go of your heritage, which I gave you. And I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land, which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger, which shall burn uh, forever. This engraving device and, and using this picture of, uh, of an iron stylus, okay? Not, not, not a pin, okay? Not even a fountain pen. Not even a, a pen that, you know, you dip into, you know, ink and then write. No, this was a device that was meant for engraving the hardest of metals. Because what was the point of this stylus? What, what was on the point of this stylus? What made up the point of this stylus? A diamond, the hardest node in substance, right? And can you imagine taking that stylus then and engraving something on, uh, whether it's metal or a part or, or some sort of stone, and, and engraving that? Normally, we think of that as something that would be valuable, right? You, you think of, you know, uh, parts, you know, my ring, both Emily's and my ring, have engravings on the inside. Um, I have Emily's name on there, and then the, you know, the supposed date of our marriage, which got moved up, but our rings, you know, have the original date before we actually got married. But, but it was done with a, a you know, a, a device that would cut into uh, metal, right? It's same thing here, except for now, it's not being used to engrave on something that's, you know, uh, a physically hard. What is it being engraved on? Their hearts. And again, how does God describe the hearts of Israel? We're going to see it later on. As hard-hearted, right? Your hearts are so hard 
I have to take a stylus with a diamond tip and engrave your sins on your heart. Wow. What, what a picture. And how hard is it to get off a, an engraving or a serial number or something like that, maybe even a VIN number or whatever it is, or, or maybe your gun or whatever it is, that, that thing that has you know, the, the serial number engraved on it, how hard is it to get that off? You have to file and file and file and file it off, right? The same picture is here of the sins of the nation of Israel. These sins have been engraved and they, they become a part of your life as if it was put there by a diamond stylus engraved on the hardness of your heart. Those things that <clears throat> seem to keep coming back and back and back in our lives. The addictions. The, the, the things that, you know, we don't want to do necessarily, but we keep going back to. They've been engraved in our heart. Who's the only one, and we're going to find this out in the very next chapter. Who's the only one that can make that hard heart soft again, pliable? Who's the only one? God can. The only one. Do you go to God for the hardness of your heart to take out the most deep-rooted of sins? In verse 5, it continues on. Thus says the Lord, Curses the man who trusts in man, whose flesh is strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert, shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding uh, fruit. There's a contrast here. One trusts in man and one trusts in God. Which one's going to last? The one that trusts in God. It's like planted by a stream of water. Or as Jesus says in the New Testament, the parable uh, of the, you know, the foolish man and the wise man. One builds his house upon sand and the other builds his house upon the rock. Which one's going to go through the problems? The earthquakes, uh, the problems of life. Which one's going to survive the storm? The one that has that foundation in God. The one who trusts in God. And you can see the, the contrast there. I mean, it, it's exactly the same number of lines. It's the exact, uh, you know, contrast uh, of what a person trusts in or who a person trusts in. Exact opposites, by the way. Or in verse 9 and 10, going back to that diamond stylus, maybe you thought this chat or these couple of verses here were from the Proverbs. I, I thought when I remember, or at least I thought, you know, this chapter or this uh, couple of verses 
always came from the Proverbs, but it actually comes from Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Where does deceit, sin, iniquity initiate from? Oh, we can blame everybody else all we want. But who's the one that makes the choice? We do. It's us that choose to sin. We just like to excuse it and blame other people. We, we, we just want to, you know, make people feel sorry for us. Someone else made me do it. But where does the origination, according to the Bible itself, come from of sin? My heart is deceitful. My heart is desperately wicked. It falls on me. But the amazing thing is there's a solution to that. It says that in the very next verse, who's the one that can search our hearts and remove all those iniquity remove all that sin scrape off the junk of our hearts it's the lord isn't that an amazing thing or in verse 11 as a partridge that broods but does not hatch so is he who gets rich but not by right he will leave him in the midst of his days and at his end he will be a fool it's that bird that sits on a clutch of eggs and all they do is rot underneath it instead of hatching. And again, the contrast here is of life and death, something that you know is going to become putrid and something that would come alive. Because normally, what happens when a bird sits on eggs? What's supposed to happen? Yeah, new life, right? The eggs are supposed to hatch. They're supposed to be baby chicks. They're cute, right? They're little bundles of feathers that are so cute, right? But what, what happens if those eggs don't hatch? They rot. They stink, right? They become black and yucky. The contrast, again, is of a person who is deceitful, a person who does not trust in God, but instead trusts in riches as this verse says. Verses 12 and 13, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. This is going to be an important theme in the next couple of chapters, this living waters, because what is the nation of Israel going through at this time? They're going through a drought. So any form of, of water, no matter how much it is, is going to become very, very precious, especially a spring or especially running water or especially, as it says here, living waters. If you've ever been to a river that was clear, what did it look like? You know, especially with the sun sparkling off of it. 
looked like it was alive. This is a picture here. It's fresh water. It's not stagnant. It's the water that you would look for that is refreshing. Verse 14, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed who persecute me. But do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed. But do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Again, who is the helpmate of Jeremiah? Does he have a wife? No. Who's the helpmate of Jeremiah? God himself. Who's going to stand up for Jeremiah in the day of trouble? God's going to stand up for him. Who's going to be there in the tough times? God's going to be there in the tough times. Who's going to be there in the time of destruction, as it says, in the time of dismay, in the time of doom? Who's going to be there for Jeremiah? God. It's God's going to be there in the tough times when no one else will be his friend or his comforter. Verse 19, thus says the Lord to me, go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in and by which they go out and in all the gates Jerusalem and say to them, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff that they may not hear nor receive instruction. This next chapter, this next phrase, this next paragraph, a couple of paragraphs that we're going to see in the end of this chapter they're going to be put here on purpose. You see, not only have the people become stiff-necked, hard-hearted, but they have no regard for their relationship with God. You see, we all know, you know, that God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he what? Rested, right? Now, did God need to rest after creating the entire universe? No, he did not. He, 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 you know, could have kept going and going and going, but it only took him six days to create everything, right? And there's an example there of on the seventh day that God rested for a specific reason. We're going to see it when we look at the, the New Testament here. But it wasn't for God. It was for his creation. For, for us, for, for man. You see, when God gave the commandments, and the fourth one being, you know, the Sabbath day shall be holy. It was after a time when the people of Israel had been in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. 
They didn't get vacations. They didn't get days off. And now God's giving them the commandments, and one of those commandments is specifically for a day that they would set aside to worship God. And they've forgotten about that. How are they treating the Sabbath day like any other day? Mundane. Just another day to work. Just another day to go and do whatever I want to do. And God's reminding them that day is holy. It's sacred. We're going to see that later on. Verse 24, and it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work on it, uh, then shall you enter the gates of this city, kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever, and they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. You see, the people of Israel have put such a great burden upon the people for the Sabbath day. Not, not just to keep it holy, not, not just to reserve it as a day of rest or, or as a day to worship the Lord, but they had made so many rules in order to protect the one rule. For instance, did you know that on the Sabbath day, you cannot look into a mirror? And you ask the question, why? That doesn't make sense. Well, you see, if you look into a mirror, you might find a hair out of place. And then you pluck that hair. What are you doing? You are working. So in order to prevent you from working, you need to cover up all the mirrors in your house. Doesn't that make logical sense? That this was the accessory laws or, or all these other laws that had been placed upon uh, the people. Or even in the time of Jesus and by the way, this is mentioned in every single gospel, this account. I'm just going to read the one from Mark. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, okay? For one thing, you're, not, you're only supposed to go a certain number or a certain length of what's called a, a Sabbath day's journey. It was considered the distance between the Mount of Olives and uh, the city of Jerusalem, Jesus did this later on uh, in the, if you uh, read the, the end of Jesus' life, where they walk from the upper room to the, um, uh, the temple, uh, excuse me, uh, the Mount of Olives. That was considered a, a Sabbath day's journey. 
but they've gone longer than this. They, they're walking through grain fields, okay? So for one thing, they're, they're walking longer than they should have. And then what else are they doing? And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. This is what they did. They, they would take the grain kernels, the, the ripe grain kernels. They would, they would put them in their hands. They would rub them together, blow on it, and the chaff would blow away. And then all that was left were these nice, ripe wheat kernels that you could chew on. Had that, you know, nutty taste to it. And who just happens to see them doing this? And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? What are they doing? They're harvesting on the Sabbath day. They're working on the Sabbath day. And God incarnate's walking beside them, by the way. They're having fellowship with God, by the way. God is teaching them, by the way. What do the Pharisees see? You're breaking the law. You're breaking those laws that our ancestors made to keep us from working on the Sabbath day. You see, there's a difference than, you know, blowing like that and actually harvesting a whole, you know, acre of wheat. What does Jesus say? Mark chapter 2, verse 25. But he said to them, have you never read what David did? The guy that you hold in such high esteem, King David himself, don't you remember what he did? When he was in need and hungry, he, those with him, when he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with them. This was the king of Israel who was not a priest, wasn't even allowed to touch or even go into the holy place where there was this table with the bread that was freshly made every single day that was reserved just for the priests. And in his time of need, what did the priests do for him? Abiathar, another guy that you hold in high regard, he gave him the bread. Why did he give the bread to David? Because he was in... He was in hung hungry or in need, right? And it's the same thing with the people that are walking through the fields. They're hungry. They're snacking on this grain. Jesus gives a, an amazing illustration in the next chapter, verse 27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Why do you come to church every single week? Why do we have church on Sundays? Why do we come throughout the week? Why don't, why don't we just come to church on a Saturday like it goes back all the way to the original, the real Sabbath? Why? Because it was made for us. So that we could worship God. Those burdens that we've carried throughout the week, we can lay them down at the feet of Jesus Christ. By the way, it's a day of rest, right? Who's the ultimate day of rest? 
Jesus. He's the one that gives rest to us. Chapter 3, it, it, Jesus goes into better detail here. It, he gives a perfect illustration. And he went into the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Again, working, okay? Because, you know, of course, if you have to heal someone, what does that require? Work. Why? Why are they watching him? So that they might accuse him. I mean, you could see the setup, by the way. You can see the malice in the Pharisee's eyes. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? Jesus Christ just goading them on. I mean, Jesus Christ did have a sense of humor, by the way. I mean, he, he's literally baiting them right now. You're trying to catch me in a trap? I'm going to make sure that you understand this. Is it better to heal or to kill on the Sabbath? Is it better to do good or to do harm? And of course, they keep quiet. They kept silent, verse 5. And when he had looked around at them with anger being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, by the way, Jesus, the only prophet that Jesus has ever compared to from the Old Testament, not, not like, you know, um, John the Baptist or something like that, but from the Old Testament, he's always compared to Jeremiah because he too wept, wept as well. He wept over Jerusalem. He he's, has that same heart. And even here, calling them the same names that Jeremiah calls them, the, the hardness of your heart, hard-hearted, stiff-necked. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. And of course, in the very next verses, the Pharisees want to kill him. They plan to kill him. Just some thoughts here on the Sabbath and why it's here. The Sabbath was intended to help people and not burden them. When you come to church, it should be a time that you can be free before God. It should never be a burden. It's supposed to be a, 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 you know, a sanctuary where you can go to and worship God freely. To be fed to be encouraged, to be refreshed, right? To have rest. But what do many times we do with church, with Sundays or whatever? It becomes a, a burden many times. And it's always supposed to be a contrast between the grueling daily work that we do throughout the rest of the week. Again, going back to the nation of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they were slaves, right? God's giving them a day of rest. That's why he put it in the commandment. To, to specifically give them a day of rest every single week. Second, Jesus is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Who do you listen to? <clears throat> you listen to man's rules or God's rules, right? Why do we serve people on a Sunday, once a month? 
Why do we do that? We could say, oh, well, that's a bunch of work. It is a bunch of work. But who are we serving? People in need, right? When you are out and about, whether it's on a, you know, a, a normal day or the, the Sabbath day, God, God convicts you and says, go and help that person. But I say, well, it's a Sunday. I'm not allowed to work. No. It, it's God that's telling you to do it. Who should you obey? The God of the universe, of course. And the last point. <clears throat> Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath always points to the rest that Jesus provides. It should always remind us who Jesus is. That's what the Sabbath is supposed to do. To remind us of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. It's not supposed to be for our own entertainment or, you know, to make business contacts or to, you know, it's why people go to church, right? Why do they go to big churches, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's the socialing and social networking and all the other things that, you know, the perks. Or maybe even, you know, they do nice things for us there. They have a... a big huge worship band or whatever it is or the preacher preaches feel-good messages you see the reason why we go to church is not for you know other people <laughs> it's to worship god right it's for jesus christ so next week we're going to be picking up in chapter 18 next week by the way is communion sunday it's the first or excuse me communion wednesday which is the first Wednesday of the month. So please uh, uh, come. I, I'm looking forward to that. Again, this coming Sunday, one service, 10 a.m., okay? So you'll get to see people from services that you don't normally uh, go to. Uh, let me pray for you and bless you as you leave tonight. Dear Father, I thank you for these, my friends, my family. I ask you bless them. And as maybe we, we remember back to the previous chapters or or maybe even read forward in the rest of Jeremiah, and we, we maybe, you know, think our, our life is hard. Our problems are big. You can look at a, a person like Jeremiah and say, you were big in that time. You were the comfort of Jeremiah. You were the hope of Jeremiah. You were there for Jeremiah in, in much bigger problems than I will probably ever have in my life and yet you were there for him and and you can be there for me as well you can be for us as well so lord remind us of that today lord i ask you bless these my friends my family that you would use us for your glory that you would remind us of these verses throughout the week that you would help us to come to a place where we have freedom in you where where the reason why we come is not not for to be seen by men, but to be seen by you, to, to know that you are here, to understand that I'm worshiping you, that audience of one. So it doesn't matter, you know, my whether I'm tone deaf or not, or whether um, I, I'm doing the right things in terms of raising my hands or sitting down or whatever it may be, but that I'm, I'm doing it for you. 
I'm, I'm worshiping you, God of the universe. And so, Lord, I ask that you would remind us of that, Lord, and free us. Give us that rest that we need, every single one of us. Bless these, my friends, with, with rest. They would be refreshed in you. So, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I ask that you massage it into our hearts, that we would have hearts that are pliable instead of hard, moldable instead of stiff. Hearts that want to follow after you rather than being deceitful and full of malice and hate. So, Lord, I thank you so much for, for reminding us of that in your word. Help us to study, to show ourselves approved. Workmen that needeth not be ashamed. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here.